Well, good morning. Let me echo again what Emmanuel said. It's so lovely to look around the church, particularly today on this Good Friday morning, and see so many brothers and sisters gathered together uh, to worship our God and to feast at his table. This morning, I'm going to break my talk into two parts. Uh, And rather than us uh, looking at the, the usual narratives we see on a Good Friday service, today we're going to spend some time looking at some of the characters around the cross, Uh, especially those thieves on either side of Jesus, which we'll hear about in our next reading. Looking at the scene and focusing in on these characters, taking advantage of some of the other Gospels to help us see and fill out this scene. In my second talk, I'm going to reflect together on some of the richness of this passage and the passion passion narratives in the other Gospels, helping us to see what fulfillment and hope Jesus brings to us in his final hours. Let me pray. Father God, as we come to the foot of your cross today, where your son gave his life for us, humble our hearts. Help us to see, Lord. Help us to feel and to know that as we have just heard sung, it was our sin that held him there that, Lord, in your mercy, you have freely forgiven each of us who call you Lord and have sent your spirit abroad across this whole world to draw your children to yourself. Help us, Lord, today as we come to your cross again not to neglect your son's life for us and the life we now have in his name. Amen. Let me ask a question to start. What is needed to be saved? That we pray a prayer of commitment at a youth camp 30 odd times? That we read our Bibles and pray every day? That we do good works? That we obey God's commands? That we lead a good life? Each of these things are good things but they're a response to our salvation, not a thing we do to be saved. From a human perspective, two things are needed to be saved. Repentance and belief that Jesus is Lord. Do we believe that? Or a better question, do we live like we believe it? Do we really believe that Jesus really has done enough? That there is nothing more I can do? Or do we live like it's up to us to finish the work that Jesus has begun on the cross? In our second reading, we'll hear, you'll know this part, Jesus is crucified between two criminals. And all the Gospels make an important state, a part of saying that there was one criminal on either side of Jesus, that he was in the middle. Mark has already just shown us that Barabbas, a man condemned for murder, guilty, and yet Jesus has died in his place that a great exchange has already happened in this passage, that the guilty has gone free and the innocent been condemned instead. 
the innocent Jesus being condemned to death so that the guilty Barabbas could walk free. But what each of the Gospels ask us with these two criminals is how do we respond to Jesus' sacrifice? The people around Jesus, on the ground, the soldiers, the chief priests, they hurl their insults at him. I don't know what it's like for you, but for me, my ears get sensitive as I come to the next part of our reading, as the people mock our Lord as he is hung on a cross. Come down from the cross and save yourself. He saved others. Why can't he save himself? Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Painful words. Oh, the bitty irony, isn't it? That it is by obediently submitting himself to God's will to die that he does save others. Not physically, not temporarily, but spiritually and eternally. And Mark adds in this reading, those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Here I'd like to turn to Luke's account, who gives a little more detail into what these criminals actually say to Jesus. The first of the criminals hurled insults at Jesus, similar to that of the crowds. Aren't you the Messiah, he says? Save yourself and us. Again, we ask, what is needed for us to be saved? Will this criminal who insults Jesus enter into the kingdom and enjoy eternal life? Luke makes it very clear that he won't because he is insulting Jesus and his insults are rebuked by the second criminal who listens in and says this, don't you fear God since you are under the same sentence? All three men, Jesus and these two criminals, have been given a death sentence. So to hurl insults on Jesus is just huge hypocrisy. It seems that this second criminal does fear God and knows that a time is coming for them quite soon when God will judge them for their deeds, including his insults. And it's worth saying that although he is speaking directly to this first criminal, he's also speaking against all the others who stand there around the cross mocking Jesus. This second criminal goes on to say, we are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. In the words of this second criminal, we have a confession of his guilt, an acknowledgement of his seeds, uh, sins or his deeds, as he says, and showing repentance by accepting that he is being punished justly and that this judgment in some way is coming from God. What is needed to be saved? Repentance is the first part of the answer. 
And that's where this criminal starts. And he is also, by comparison, declaring Jesus as innocent. He goes on to say to Jesus, those famous words, we know them well. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. This is touching and tender. This criminal is the only person in the whole gospel of Luke to address Jesus simply as Jesus. And in his request, he is declaring his belief that Jesus is the Lord. Why do I say that? Because he's just said that Jesus has a kingdom, which makes Jesus the king of that kingdom, the Lord and ruler. This Jewish criminal was likely anticipating a future time at the end of days when Jesus will come back to judge the world. And when that future day comes, this criminal wants to stand there with Jesus. But what Jesus says next is absolutely astounding. You know the words. Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus comforts this convicted criminal that today, this day, immediately, he will join Jesus in paradise. As a, a sidestep for me, I think implicitly, immediately alongside these words of Paul's words, that this is a hint for us who believe that immediately after we die in faith, we enter into a state of consciousness in the presence of our Lord Jesus from the moment of our death until the resurrection of the body. You don't have to read it that way, but I think that's clear in Scripture. What is significant, what is underlined and made clear is that repentance and genuine belief in Jesus Christ as Lord guarantees us of our immediate salvation, both now in this life and the life to come. There is nothing the criminal could have done. As he hung on the cross, no good deed, no pious act, nothing he could add to get himself over the line into heaven. He didn't pray a prayer of commitment. He didn't read his Bible every day. They didn't exist then. He obviously wasn't doing well on the good works front, the fact he was crucified for rebellion tells us that. Probably wasn't obeying God's commands that lead to a good life. All he could do, all this criminal could do, was believe that as Jesus was dying next to him, Jesus was the Messiah. As Jesus dies on the cross, he demonstrates that he has done absolutely everything needed to save this man. And that this criminal had nothing, nothing he could offer in return. Jesus can and does have the power to save despite what the crowd shouts at him. Let me close this section by reading a well-known scripture and illustrating it briefly. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. 
You see, Barabbas is like the world that God so loved, that he sent his son Jesus into to die for everyone, including Barabbas, taking upon himself the condemnation our sin deserves, the innocent sentenced to death in place of the guilty, taking their punishment. It was our sin that hung him there. And we are included in those upon whom Jesus prays in John. Father, forgive them. This is a universal offer for everyone, the whole world. But the offer is only received by those who believe in him. Both criminals to Jesus' right and left have the same offer. Jesus was given for them both. But it's only the second criminal who repents and believes in him who is assured of his salvation. Immediate entry into paradise and the promise of eternal life. What is needed to be saved? Very simply, repentance and belief that Jesus is Lord. Thanks be to God that he sent his son and has done everything to bring us back into relationship with him. Welcome to paradise. This passage of scripture is so rich with prophetic fulfillment, biblical allusions and direct quotes from other parts of the scriptures. It's because this is the moment in history that God's promises and his will is so perfectly executed that we see so many threads of Scripture being drawn together across all of the Bible. For this final part of my talk, I'd like us to look at just a couple of these, and there are many more. This is no way a complete overview. But I want us to see, to see what Jesus is offering those who believe through his death. When I was at Bible college, I had a friend, still have a friend, uh, who was and still is uh, a comic book illustrator. Uh, And I commissioned him to draw for me a picture. Uh, I've had it in mind for a number of years, every time I come to this passage of Scripture. And I thought, uh, given uh, this morning, that I'd share the picture with us briefly. Um, It may come up on the screen. It's in my study, hanging on my wall. Now, it's quite dark, both in its theme and in its colors, and that's intentional. The sketch tries to unite our passage with another prophecy from the Bible. Does anyone know which one? You remember back that when Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit on the very first pages of Scripture, when they chose not to believe God, they lost the one thing that matters a relationship with God where they could move around freely, where they could uh, enjoy his garden paradise without fear of their nakedness, without shame, in the presence of God himself. 
And the ache of all humanity ever since has been to fill that void in our lives that was left, that God-shaped hole, as often said. The whole Bible tells us the story of the lengths to which our God would go to right this wrong. Even the temple in Jerusalem, as you read it, was designed to bring God's people back to Eden in some ways. With descriptions on the walls of the fruit trees and the rivers. And God dwelling in the midst of the temple in the same way as dwelling among his people. You see, at that fall in Genesis chapter 3 in the garden, having been deceived by the serpent, who is Satan, God curses the snake and says to him these words in Genesis chapter 3.15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Right there, back in the garden in Eden on the first few pages of the Bible, when human beings were cast out from God's presence, God gave us a tiny glimmer of hope. God promised that a day would come when a descendant of Eve would crush the head of the serpent, but that he himself would be critically injured in the process. At the cross, we see this fulfillment of an ancient promise. Verse 22. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. It is at the place of the skull that Jesus crushes the head of the skull of the serpent, that Jesus defeats Satan through death. The author to the letter of Hebrews says this in chapter 2, 14. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too, that's Jesus, shared in their humanity, so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives have been in slavery by their fear of death. The whole story arc of the Bible links us back to Eden. From what we lost in Genesis 3, right at the start of the Bible, to what we receive through Jesus' death in our place, a relationship with God. A relationship that will cover the whole of the recreated world at the very end of times, when Christ returns, as the book of Revelation says. Again, full of garden imagery with rivers and a tree of life. See also how Jesus is depicted as being without clothing in verse 24. We often imagine Jesus wearing some form of loincloth, don't we, to, to cover his modesty. But naked crucifixions were common. And the Romans were far less concerned with modesty, especially for convicted criminals than we are. In John's gospel, he's quite explicit to show us that Jesus was fully naked on the cross. This is a fulfillment of Psalm 22, where David writes in verse 18, they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. The gospel writers are showing us God's complete control in this situation. 
But again, a hint back to Eden, where God makes a sacrifice and clothes Adam and Eve to cover their shame and their nakedness. Yet, Jesus is shamed, fully stripped of all his clothing, exposing his nakedness, that we might be clothed in his righteousness. Like I say, the whole story arc of the Bible is linking us back to Eden. Remember what Jesus said to the repentant thief on the cross? He said, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. This word Jesus uses, paradise, is a a Persian word which has the ideas of luscious, fruitful gardens, just like Eden. But there's another way in which this passage offers us a link back to Eden. Verse 38. The curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The temple, with all its Eden-like imagery and symbols, the place where God symbolically dwelt with his people, has a significant difference to the Eden it was meant to represent. You see, in Eden, God could move about freely among his people in their presence. But since the fall, Adam and Eve, his people could no longer come near to him because we're not holy enough, because we're stained with sin. And the curtain in the temple symbolized that, that we could only go so far and no further because we're too dirty to come near God, to come into his presence. But you see, brothers and sisters, when the curtain of the temple is torn in two, God is pictured as coming out of the temple to reach out to all. God cannot be contained. We no longer need to be shielded from his glory for fear of death. Jesus' obedient death in our place represents the ultimate opening up of a way to God, to relationship with him, to being in his presence once more. And so by his death on a cross, at the place of the skull, Jesus defeats our great enemy, the devil, once and for all, crushing his head and freeing us from his grip and the fear of death and rescuing us for eternal life with him in his presence forever. Brothers and sisters, all who believe Jesus will one day come and welcome you into his paradise. Not because of anything we've done, no prayer of commitment, no amount of Bible reading or prayer, no number of good works, no obedience to his laws, No leading a good life. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing for anything we have done, but entirely because of what Jesus has done for us in our place. So we can one day be called home. Welcome to paradise. We'll now have our final reading.